0: Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and a spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Well, good morning, church. Uh, if you do have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Mark, chapter one. Um, if you don't have the Word with you this morning, we'll have it up on the screen. But I'd encourage you, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark, chapter one. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses twelve and thirteen, and uh, we read we read nine through thirteen this morning because I wanted you to remember where we were at last week, what kind of set up the scene then for us this week as we arrive at verse twelve. So as you're turning there, I'm actually going to read from Genesis three, and even more so, kinda set the scene for us this morning. Because we're gonna see today that Jesus, being led by the Spirit out into the wilderness, was not an accident. Jesus being led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to encounter the enemy, this wasn't an accidental encounter. But instead, it is battle number one, of a war that Jesus came to earth to win. And so think back with me to the Garden of Eden. Think back to Adam and Eve living in paradise, walking with God, enjoying God, enjoying perfect fellowship with him and with one another and with creation and with the animals in a lush garden. But then what happens? The ancient serpent, the enemy, deceives Adam and Eve, and they rebel, they disobey. And sin enters into the world. And now there is death, disease, and destruction. Now humanity doesn't live in perfect harmony with creation and with animals and with one another. And now this perfect communion that we had with God has now been fractured. And so a lot of bad news happens in Genesis 3. But there is some promise of some good news as well in Genesis 3. So, hear these words from Genesis 3, verse 15. God speaking to the serpent, he says, This, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head. Some translations say, Crush your head. And so, church, the reason I bring up Genesis 3 is because you need to see the big picture of what is about to happen here in our passage and understand how it relates to the garden. Adam was humanity's initial representative. And he was in paradise. He was in perfect harmony with God. He was in perfect harmony with Eve and with the rest of creation and animals. He was surrounded by a lush garden with plenty of food to eat and no hardships to be found. He then encounters the enemy and he disobeys God. Adam encounters Satan and loses. But Jesus... Who if you remember in our advent series we called the true and better Adam Jesus he's not in a garden he's going to we're going to see he's out in a wilderness he's fasting for 40 days nothing to eat he's surrounded not by a garden but by a desert he's surrounded by wild enemies and he wild animals and he encounters the enemy and he obeys God Jesus encounters Satan and wins And we'll come back to this verse later on, but I want to plant it in your heart and mind, and it's Romans 5, 19. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, speaking of Adam, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous, speaking of Jesus. Jesus is our sinless Savior, and his victory becomes our victory. So, church, look now at Mark and let's let the snake crushing begin, okay? Mark 1, verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. I want you to think for a second about silence and solitude. Think about silence and solitude. These are two things that if they were animals, they would probably be on the endangered species list, right? In our culture and in our society, times of silence and solitude are quickly evaporating and almost becoming extinct. So much so that now silence, we have something called awkward silence, right? I don't think silence was always awkward, but now it is awkward because we're not used to it, right? We come across silence and we're like, Oh, hey, how's it going? Uh, It's been a while. Like, you want to listen to some music? Can we do something to not make this so awkward, right? Anytime we come across silence, we want to fill it with some noise, right? It's awkward. You want to listen to something. You want to fill the noise, fill the space. And then think about solitude. Think about being alone. People are afraid of this now, right? People are afraid of this. We don't know how to be alone, So if we are alone, what do we do? If we're alone, we take pictures of what we're eating or what we're reading or what we're doing. We share that with other people, right, online. We get their feedback input and then we don't feel alone, right? That's what we do. We don't like to be alone. In our culture, even brief, small moments of silence and solitude are being filled up with other things. Just think about all the times in life that used to provide at least short times of silence and solitude, but now with smartphones, we don't even allow those short times to exist. What do you have with that moment that you're sitting by yourself in silence, in the quiet? What do you do? You get your phone out, you fill the space. And so church, you don't have to be a Christian to agree that this lack of silence and solitude is not a healthy thing. And so last year, a song came out on iTunes that made the top 50 list, okay? People were purchasing this song so much on iTunes, it made the top 50 list. The song was 10 minutes of complete silence. There was nothing on the track. It was 10 minutes of silence, and people were purchasing this at rapid rates, they were purchasing this song. There was not even like background music, there was no like stringed instruments, there was no synthesizer, there was nothing on the track. And you read the iTunes comments on this song, people are writing, this song has changed my life, right? (laughs) This song is the best 10 minutes of my day, right? Which got me thinking, like, why can't I think of something like that to sell people? Like, someone is laughing all the way to the bank that they sold this song that has 10 minutes of nothing on it. So if you want to buy it, if you have nothing better to do with your money, you can first come talk to me first. But you can go purchase this on iTunes. It's called A Very Good Song. But it's called A-A-A-A-A Very Good Song. Five A's. So you know why they titled it this? They titled it this because, for those of you that have a car that maybe connects Bluetooth to your phone, those cars will sometimes automatically just start playing the first song in alphabetical order in your iTunes playlist. So, people are buying this song because instead of their car immediately right when they get into it starting to play a song, it's now playing 10 minutes of silence and it's literally changing people's lives. They're sitting in the car and 10 minutes of silence and it's such a beautiful, healthy thing for them. 10 minutes of silence. And then I was reading about a professor at MIT. She's Professor Sherry Turkle, who's a, who's a professor there. She has interviewed hundreds of people of all ages about how our obsession with social, social media and technology is changing us, changing how we think, changing how we develop And in a recent interview, Professor Turkle said she was worried that there's at least one cost to our addiction to technology. She said it is the loss of solitude. The loss of solitude. She's concerned about our loss of solitude. Professor Turkle says, I do some of my field work at stop signs, at checkout lines, at supermarkets, give people even a second, and they're doing something with their phone. Every bit of research says people's capacity to be alone is disappearing. What can happen is that you lose that moment to have a daydream or to cast an eye inward. Instead, you look to the outside. Solitude is the precondition of having a conversation with yourself. This capacity to be with yourself and discover yourself is the bedrock of development. But now from the youngest age, even two, three, or four, children are given technology that removes solitude by giving them something externally distracting. That makes it harder, ironically, to form true relationships. I have so many examples of children who will be talking with their parents, something will come up, and the parent will go online to search, and the kids will say, Daddy, stop Googling, I just want to talk to you. So this is a, I don't don't know, Professor Terkel, I I don't know if she's a believer or not, but I think we can even see non-Christians, non-believers are sensing something is wrong, that we're missing silence and solitude. People's capacity to be alone is disappearing. And church, this is even more important for us because silence and solitude are our times to think, reflect, and pray. Times of silence and solitude are the times that we become more aware of God's presence in our lives. It's the times that we become more aware of what's happening in our hearts. And it's often the times that we can sense the Spirit prompting us and leading us. But for many of us, times of silence and solitude are nowhere to be found. So here in Mark, Jesus has been baptized signifying the official start of his public ministry. And what does he do first? Does he have a party or reception? Does he go get more education or training? Does he start right into his teaching and healing ministry? No. Immediately, the Spirit drove him out to the wilderness to a place of silence and solitude. And we will see throughout Jesus' time here on earth, he's, he's he's not a hermit, He's around people. He's engaged with people a lot. But we're going to see over and over him withdraw himself, him go to the wilderness, him have times of silence and solitude because he knows being fully God and fully human that he needs those times of silence and solitude to reflect and think and pray and enjoy communion with God the Father and God the Spirit. And so Jesus is out in the wilderness for 40 days fasting and praying and trusting God. Compare that to God's people when they were led out of Egypt to the wilderness where they wandered 40 years. They grumbled, complained, and failed time after time to trust God. But Jesus perfectly trusts God and is not grumbling and complaining, but being led by the Spirit, he is trusting and depending upon God. We talked last week about how God loves To meet his people in the wilderness. The wilderness is a lonely, dry, desolate place, but it is also a place where people must utterly depend upon and trust God to survive. And we talked about how many of us can sometimes feel maybe we're not in the physical surrounding of the wilderness, but we can have seasons where it feels like a wilderness season where we just feel dry spiritually. feels like we haven't gotten a fresh word from the Lord in a while. But take heart, church. God loves to meet his people in those wilderness seasons because those are the seasons that we press into him more. Those are the seasons that we trust and depend upon him more. And a life that is utterly dependent upon God and trusting God, that is a life of true joy and freedom. And so, therefore, we can say, praise God for the wilderness. Praise God for the wilderness seasons in our life. Humanity falls and wants independence from God in gardens of comfort. Humanity is restored to depending upon God and trusting upon God in the wilderness. Therefore, we can say, praise God for the wilderness. And so the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness not only to depend upon the strength of God, but for survival—sorry, not not just to excuse me—I got my words tied up. Not only to depend upon the strength of God for survival and strength in His flesh, but He also was driven out to the wilderness for an encounter with the enemy. So some have said that Jesus fasting and praying for 40 days, the enemy came when his, his uh, humanity, his human flesh was at its weakest. Others would argue, including myself, I would say that no, Jesus' humanity was at its strongest because it was totally dependent upon God while he was fasting and praying those 40 days. The wilderness and fasting heightens our spiritual and mental alertness on God and focuses our total dependence upon him. It's not like Jesus was surprised that the enemy showed up. Jesus knows that this is what he was sent to do. 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And therefore, he prepared by fasting and praying we we'll look back at Mark 1, verse 13. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. Mark is pretty brief here in regards to the details of the temptation. Now, I do think he's brief here for a reason, but let's real quick look at a parallel passage to get some more details. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Now, there's a reason that Mark is brief, and so we're going to try to stay mainly preaching in Mark. But let's let some of the details from Luke fill in our understanding of what's going on. Because here is something that's kind of rubbed me the wrong way in the past, and has frustrated even my own understanding of this passage. When I've heard this passage taught, or when I've read it myself... I typically take away the main point of this passage is that we see the enemy tempt Jesus and him respond with Scripture. So my main takeaway in the past has usually been, okay, memorize, learn Scripture so that I can resist the enemy. And listen, that's not a wrong application of this passage at all. That is a very good point. We're going to get to that in the end, talking about how this applies to us. Definitely no Scripture to fight off the enemy. But listen, that's not the main point of this passage because we know the Bible is not primarily about us, right? The main point of this passage is that we have a sinless Savior. Jesus is our sinless Savior. Because do you realize what's at stake here in this battle between the enemy and Jesus? Do you really grasp what is on the line Because our eternal destiny is on the line in this battle. Satan is trying to stop God's plan for human redemption. These two verses in Mark and this passage in Luke we could quickly just read through these and blow through these and be like, oh, okay, yeah, uh, I know I need to know more scripture so I can fight temptation. Or we can just brush it to the side, like, well, you know, I know Jesus was fully human, but he's also fully God, so of course he resisted the enemy. But church, when you read this, you need to let the gravity of this battle sink down into your bones. Satan is trying to stop Jesus from saving you. He's trying to keep us in slavery to sin, and he's trying to keep us in bondage. If Jesus falls, if Jesus fell into temptation and sin, he would not be our sinless Savior, and therefore his sacrificial death on the cross would not be sufficient. His sacrificial death on the cross would not have redeemed you from your sin, his sacrificial death on the cross would not have taken away your sin, guilt, and shame. His sacrificial death on a cross would not have reconciled you to God. If He had not defeated Satan's sin and death church, we would have no hope. But the good news, the good news is that Jesus wins, and His victory becomes our victory. Look now at Luke 4 verse 1. We're going to read quickly through it. I'll give, uh, I'll say a few brief words on it. So Luke 4 verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit to the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. When the enemy comes, he questions, he deceives, He twists God's words just like he did in the garden. And so he questions why would the Son of God have to live like this, hungry out in the wilderness? The enemy is trying to talk Jesus out of the wilderness, so to speak. He's challenging Jesus to use his divine power to satisfy his immediate needs. He's tempting him with instant gratification to go back to a life of comfort that has plenty of bread. But Jesus knows he is to resist, and he is to rely on God for all that he needs for life on earth. And so Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy with what his people should have learned while out in the wilderness. He says in verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus says, trusting God is more important than just satisfying my fleshly needs and desires. Verse five, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If then you will worship me, it will be all yours. We now see he's tempting Jesus to break the first of the 10 commandments. Verse eight, and Jesus answered him, it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Now Satan starts twisting scripture. He's referencing Psalm 91, taking it out of context, misusing it to tempt Jesus to test God. Verse 12, and Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now go ahead and turn back to Mark. The enemy came, similarly to when he came in the garden. He questions, he tries to deceive, he twists God's words, And here he was ultimately trying to thwart the plan of God to redeem his people. But Jesus, unlike Adam, trusted and obeyed. And Jesus won the battle, and his victory has now become our victory. Because think about this. I've sometimes wondered this. Like, why did Jesus not just come down to earth on Good Friday? Like, sometimes we think the only purpose of Jesus coming was to die a sacrificial death on a cross, which is true that he came to die on the cross, but if that was the only reason he came, why not just come down on Good Friday? Like, why not skip the whole being born in a manger? Why not skip the whole going through puberty, middle school phase, right? Why not skip the whole putting up with the disciples? Why not just skip the all, you know, being driven out to the wilderness, fasting for 40 days out in the desert, Why not just skip all that and just get the cross over with? Why not just come down on Good Friday? Well, R.C. Sproul has a quote that I think sheds some light on this. He says, if Jesus had only paid for our sins, he would have succeeded only in taking us back to square one. We would no longer be guilty, but we would still have absolutely no positive righteousness to bring before God. So our Redeemer not only needed to die, he had to live a life of perfect obedience. The righteousness that he manifested could then be transferred to all who put their trust in him. Just as my sin is transferred to him on the cross when I put my trust in him, his righteousness is transferred to my account in the sight of God. So when I stand before God on Judgment Day, God is going to see Jesus and his righteousness, which will be my cover. That is the gospel. You see, not only did we need Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin and die in our place, not only that, we needed him to come live a life of perfect obedience in our place. So that in Christ, not only does he take our sin and the penalty for it, but he now gives us his righteousness. And that is what we are clothed in. Remember that verse from Romans I shared in the beginning, Romans five nineteen: For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The spirit drove Jesus out to the wilderness not for an accidental encounter with the enemy but for a victorious encounter with the enemy so that his victory we would can now be our victory so that by his obedience we would be made righteous so look back at mark jesus is out in the wilderness and it says he's surrounded by wild animals Now, Christians around that time when Mark is writing, they were being thrown into the Colosseum to be ripped apart by wild animals. They understood the danger of wild animals. This wasn't like, oh, at least Jesus has some nice animals around him out in the wilderness, right? No, this is a scene that is dry and dangerous and wild animals surrounding him and the enemy is tempting. But isn't it comforting That although Jesus is in the wilderness, in a dry, dangerous, seemingly isolated place, isn't it comforting to see that he is not alone? And here we see God sends help. Look at the end of verse 13. God sends help. And the angels were ministering to him. We often don't think much about angels because many times they are not visible to us. And we don't know everything about angels, but the Bible does tell us some things about them. We know that angels are created beings, okay? We are not to pray to angels or worship angels, they are created beings. Angels are highly intelligent beings, but they are not all-knowing like God is. We know that angels are morally good, however, some angels did rebel and they were cast out of heaven, and so Satan and demons are fallen angels. And then we see how angels are used throughout the scriptures. We see that God deploys angels to sometimes speak to his people, to sometimes rescue his people, to sometimes guide his people, and to sometimes minister to his people. But in this passage, we don't need to get caught up on, the, on this angel topic. Mainly what we need to see is that God sends help. We need to see that God sends help in temptation and when we're in the wilderness 1 Corinthians 10:13 says, "No temptation has overtaken you, that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is faithful. He will provide the way of escape. This may come through angels ministering to us. This may come through the Spirit empowering us. This may come through his word and other spiritual disciplines that help us fight and grow in grace. But we know that God is faithful and he sends help. We know that God ultimately sent us help by sending us his son, Jesus who because he was tempted in every way, he is now qualified to be our sympathetic high priest. And church, there is great comfort to be had in knowing that God sends help, that he does not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability, and that he provides us help in our temptations so that we may be able to endure them. And so, church, I want to even more kind of try to apply this to our lives about when we are now being tempted. Because I'm concerned for us. I'm concerned that we are surrounded by temptation, and yet we don't realize the seriousness of the battles. We don't realize the seriousness of the battles that we are in, and therefore we are greatly unprepared for temptation when it comes. Jesus went in battle with the enemy, we saw in Luke him go time and time again to the word. He kept saying, it is written, it is written. He was using God's word to fight the enemy. One of my favorite things to do with my boys is to wrestle with them. And as they get bigger and as they grow in number, it's becoming more and more dangerous for me. But nonetheless, I still enjoy wrestling with them. And when they were a little bit smaller, when Jamin was was smaller, I would be wrestling with Jackson and it, was always, it always stuck in my mind how smart the, what Jamin would do before he would wrestle. So Jamin was the littlest at that time. It was just Jackson and Jamin. He, he would let me and Jackson start wrestling. And instead of him running right to the fight, you know what Jamin would do? He would first go look for a weapon. <laughs> right? Which is pretty smart, right? I mean, he would go find a bat or a plastic sword or something he could hit me with which I always thought was pretty smart. Like, if you're the littlest guy in the fight, you better bring something to fight with, okay? When you know you are weak, bring a weapon. In church, we have been given God's word, which in Ephesians is called the sword of the spirit. In church, while living in this world, we are going to be tempted. The enemy will come against the people of God. And so let me strongly suggest you go run and grab your weapon. This is a book not just for your pastors to know. This is for you to know. So read it, memorize it, meditate on it, listen to it, enjoy it, cherish it, share it, and get yourself ready to use it. Temptations will come. Battles will come. Get your weapon ready. And then cultivate other habits of grace. Some people have called these spiritual disciplines. I'd prefer the phrase habits of grace. Follow Jesus' example and fast, do a fast. Cultivate a reliance on God. Remind yourself that you are dependent upon him. Willingly let yourself be led to the wilderness, so to speak, and fast. Follow Jesus' example and pray. Cultivate habits of grace like having times of silence and solitude. Enjoy a half hour of silence. Maybe you have to start with a a 10-minute silent song on iTunes. Hey, if that's where you need to start, no judgment. Start there, okay? You can work your way from there. Start there. Develop a habit of grace of having a Sabbath day of rest where you just stop doing and you just start being. Develop a habit of grace of, of giving your resources to those that need them. Develop that habit of grace, of being generous with your resources, giving them to to the work through God's church or giving them to missionaries or giving them to the poor. And then listen to God's word, read God's word, memorize God's word, meditate on God's word. Cultivate these habits of grace in your life and be prepared for when temptation comes. Because I fear we don't cultivate these because we don't realize how high the stakes really are. I don't think we realize that we are in a war. Too often, we play with sin. We play with it instead of fighting it. And we do this because we don't get how serious sin really is. One of John Owen's most famous quotes is, be killing sin or it will be killing you. But no, many times we play with sin, right? We show up with a Nerf gun to a life and death battle. Church, you have to know that sin that you are playing with, it's trying to kill you. It's trying to kill your marriage. It's trying to kill your joy. It's trying to kill your relationship with your kids. It's trying to kill this church. It's trying to kill your friendships. It's trying to kill your hope. It's trying to kill your peace. That sin that you are playing with is trying to kill you. John 8, 44, speaking of Satan, says he was a murderer from the beginning. So stop playing with your sin and start killing it. If you think I'm talking directly to you, I am. Stop playing with it. Take your brothers and sisters and go drag that pet sin out into the light and put it to death. Now this can be, this can be a daunting task in our own strength. But take heart. Take heart. 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Church, take heart. We will be led into the wilderness. We will face dangers. We will be tempted. And we will have battles. But we are not alone. We are not alone. Christ triumphantly has gone before us, he goes with us, and he goes behind us. And it is his strength that our confidence is in. Hear these words from Hebrews 4 14 and 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Well, you might say that all sounds nice. Okay. Cultivate habits of grace. Grab the sword of the Spirit. Jesus is our sinless Savior. He not only died in our place, but lived obediently in our place. Our faith, we put our trust in Him. Great. All sounds great. I'm on board. But what about when I am tempted and I fall? What about when I am tempted and I disobey? Because even after we are saved, we are still tempted to sin and we still often fall into sin. What do we do with this then? Well, we are to first quickly confess and repent and turn from it and turn back to Christ and trust Christ's work on our behalf. But then I don't know about you, but even after I have confessed and repented of sin, sometimes even years later, the accuser comes. And throws my past sin in my face, and I am tempted to live in guilt and shame. And I've shared this before with you, but let me share it again. It's such a great quote from Martin Luther. He says, When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death in hell, tell him this, says Luther I admit that I deserve death in hell, what of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. And so church, when the accuser comes and throws your past sin in your face, take your sword, go to Romans 8, and read these words out loud so you can speak them and hear them. Hear this from Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And I'm not sure what you go to when the accuser comes and throws your past sin in your face. But let me encourage you, go to Romans 8. Go to the Word and rest and trust in Christ's work on your behalf. So I'm not sure how many of you have been watching the Olympics recently. Uh, One thing I really enjoy and appreciate about the Winter Olympics is that it really makes me appreciate the Summer Olympics, right? I mean you might really get into the Winter Olympics, but for me, it's really just, hey, only two more years till the real Olympics are here, right? Okay, and so there is a story that I want to share from one of the Summer Olympics, and maybe you've heard this before, but it is an image that once I heard it, it has always stuck with me, and it happened at the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, and it happened during the 400-meter race. Now, when we think of the Christian life, and we think of running the, the, the race of life as a Christian, we often falsely envision it being like an Olympic runner sprinting around 400 meters just gracefully and gloriously with no stumbling, tripping, or signs of fatigue. We falsely think that is what the Christian life is like. Church, that is not what the Christian like life is like. It looks more like what happened in Barcelona during the 400 meter race. And there was an athlete from Great Britain named Derek Redmond who was one of the favorites to win. And at about the 200 meter mark, about halfway through the race, he tore his hamstring. And he falls to the ground in agony and pain. Now, you can imagine just the physical pain from tearing your hamstring, but you can also just imagine the the emotional pain. I mean, here he was at this point, at the Olympics, all all the years of training and hard work, all that preparation, he was favored to win, and now it's all over. He's down on the ground. But then something happens. He gets up, and he starts hopping on one leg, And he seems like he's determined to finish the race, to hop on one leg for 200 meters. But as you're watching, you're just thinking, man, like, he's not going to make it. He still has such a long way to go. You can't hop on one foot 200 meters in his own strength. I do not think he will get to the finish line. But then something even more incredible happens. His father runs down from the stands. He pushes security guards out of the way. He fights off race officials to get to his son. And he gets down next to his son and he puts his arm around him. And the son rests all of his weight on his father. And together they walk and they finish the race to a standing ovation. Church, I realize that living in a world where we are surrounded by temptations at every turn, I realize it can be wearisome. It can be tiring. At times, it can be discouraging. We often feel like we stumble, trip, and face plant. We often feel like we've got a torn hamstring and we can't run. Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me, All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The Christian life is not running a perfect race on our own. It is instead realizing we can't run it on our own. And that we need to rest totally on Christ and his work to finish the race. And so church, praise God that the spirit leads us to the wilderness. Because it is in the wilderness where we rest our entire weight on Christ. And we rest in his strength and provisions to finish the race. Church, Jesus is our sinless savior. Jesus defeated Satan's sin and death and his victory has become our victory. And I am confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And I say that not because I have confidence in your strength and not because I even have confidence in your faith. No, I say that because I have confidence in the one in whom we are resting our full weight on. We will stumble, we will fall, we will hobble through this life, but Jesus wins. And his victory is our victory. And it is in him that we trust and rest to finish the race. The one who saves us will keep us till the end. So stop trying to run on your own and rest on Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I, I admit that many times I try to run on my own. I try to run in my own strength for my own glory. I try to rely on my own abilities, my own willpower. God, I know we all do. Father, I ask that you would break us, that you would humble us, that you would open our eyes to see our inability in our own strength to get to the finish line, God. I ask that this morning and every morning that we would put our full weight, that we would put our faith, our trust, our dependence upon you and you alone and not have anything in us. Help us fully rest in Jesus' work on our behalf and we will praise you that Jesus, your victory, is our victory. In Jesus' name, amen.